In this two-part interview, we discuss the birth of the Special Victim Counsel Program with retired Lieutenant General Richard Harding. The Judge Advocate General of the United States Air Force from 2010 to 2014, who was instrumental in creating the SVC program that affords sex assault victims independent legal counsel. We take a behind-the-scenes look at what occurred at the Pentagon and with top elected officials that led to the program's birth. General Harding discusses the initial opposition to the program, its biggest challenges, and how to effectuate positive change. Here are a few clips from part one of today's interview. In the hallways, I was stopped a few times and asked by very senior you know, political appointees, you know, what the heck I was doing and, and did I understand it was illegal? And I said, it's not illegal, it's fine, it's gonna work fine. And I charged them to understand that there's a lot of pressure on what they're about to do. They needed to know that the eyes of the nation were on them. Welcome to the Air Force Judge Advocate General's Reporter Podcast, where we interview leaders, innovators, and influencers on the law, leadership, and best practices of the day. And now to your host from the Air Force Judge Advocate General School. Welcome to another episode from the Air Force Judge Advocate General School at Maxwell Air Force Base. I'm your host, Major Rick Hanrahan. Remember, if you like the show, please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform and leaving a review. This helps us to grow an outreach to the JAG Corps and beyond. Well, we have a prominent guest and fascinating topic for today's interview. We have the unique privilege to interview retired Lieutenant General Richard Harding, the former Judge Advocate General of the United States Air Force from 2010 to 2014, with a military career spanning 34 years. And he's here today to speak with us on the birth of the Special Victim Counsels Program. Sir, thank you for taking some time to speak with us today. You bet. It's an honor and a privilege. I'm glad to be here. Lieutenant General Harding, the son of an Air Force officer and grandson of a Naval officer, entered the Air Force with a direct commission in 1980. From there, he served in a variety of assignments as a judge advocate, to include serving six assignments as a staff judge advocate at the Unified Command, Major Command, Numbered Air Force, and Wing Levels, to Commander of Air Force Legal Operations Agency at Boeing Air Force Base in Washington, D.C. Then in February of 2010, General Harding was appointed as the Judge Advocate General of the United States Air Force, or TJAG, where he served for the next four years until 2014 as the highest-ranking uniform attorney in the Air Force, and the principal legal advisor to the Secretary of the Air Force, the Air Force Chief of Staff, and all officers subordinate to them, where he led over 4,400 unified and civilian lawyers, paralegals, and legal support personnel. During his tenure as TJAG, he helped implement numerous initiatives, including the Service Award-Winning Special Victim Counsels Program, which we'll talk about today, that provides victims of sexual assault with independent legal counsel. General Harding also led in the development for writing the Air Force Directive, the Air Force Instruction on Standards of Conduct, improved the Legal Assistance Training Program, created and implemented the Certification Program for Air Force Prosecutors and Defense Counsel to represent their clients without the assistance of a Senior Trial Counsel, and created the Training and Readiness Office for the Air Force JAG Corps, among numerous other initiatives. Currently, General Harding is retired and lives with his wife, Linda, in Columbia, Missouri. So, sir, before we jump into today's topic, just curious how retired life is going for you these days and how you're spending your time. That's going pretty well. I've got uh, 
<laughs> I never knew <clears throat> that when you raise your hand and volunteered after you left the service, how busy you can get. So um, <clears throat> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a trustee on the board of trustees for Columbia College. Uh, I speak uh, uh, for the uh, uh, professional education group, uh, which does uh, CLE across the nation. I've served as the, the president of, um, of Welcome Home, which um, is a, a veterans um, a homelessness center. Uh, we run a, a um, you know, a shelter uh, and provide other services as well, mental health services, and try to get people back up on their feet. Most recently served as the president of our our church's council. So I, you know, I've been a little busy as a matter of fact. Uh, and Linda has done the same. She's uh, on the assistance league and, and works like crazy down there. And that's, that's a good thing. So we're very busy. We live out on a wooded uh, couple of acres, forested kind of lot um, outside Columbia and, and life is, life is very good. So I'm glad we moved here. I had never really been associated with Columbia before. But I knew my my grandkids were in Jefferson City, which is 20 minutes away. So that would be a good thing. And so and so we got here and we found uh, the perfect place and uh, and we're very happy. Thanks for asking. Yes, sir. Well, that that's great to hear, and that there is a light at the end of the tunnel after retirement. <laughs> so so here we're, we're here to talk today on today's topic, which is the birth of the Special Victim Councils Program. And really, I can't think of anybody that would have a better perspective than you, sir. I know that we talked about this briefly in preparing for today's interview. And, and you know, today, uh, many judge advocates and, and legal professionals, even worldwide, uh, are very aware of this program, and many join the service to get involved with the program. So it's come a very long way from its birth. Today, I think what we'd like to do is kind of maybe pull back the curtain a little bit and let us hear from you on your perspective on how this program came to be. 2012 was was mon monumentally important for um, victims' rights in the Air Force. Um, you know, we had uh, the results of uh, uh, the every other year survey that incredibly said we had 26,000 sexual assaults in the Department of Defense the year before. It also said that 87% of those were unreported, and therefore only 13% were reported. At that time, we had the restricted, unrestricted um, uh, dichotomy. About half of the 13% were restricted. So that was really the challenge. How do you fix something when you can't find it um, and you don't know exactly where it is? There were lots of different reasons for not reporting those, and, and we learned a lot about that. The same reasons that you see in uh, campus sexual assault today for not reporting sexual assaults. So you, how do you fix a problem when 87% is, is, is hidden from you? Next, we had some help from some interest groups, Protect Our Defenders, Service Women's Action Network. Uh, both represented um, people who had been, or, or veterans who had been sexually assaulted and went on active duty. And, and, and clearly, they were not happy. Uh, we heard story after story that kind of ended with, I was, sec I was assaulted twice, first by the offender and, and then by the system. So how do you, how do you fix that? Well, you, what, what you try to do is you, is you try to give people voice and choice. And in uh, and, and the victim's representation community, you're going to hear that phrase often, voice and choice. And that means, you know, give them some tool where, where their voice can be heard. 
you know, without representation, um, they're kind of along for the ride. And um, sometimes they feel like they've been treated like a child, you know, to be seen, but rarely heard. And the system, our system, any system, any criminal system is going to be mysterious to them. That was one of the impetuses. Um, finally, in 2012, the chief of staff, Mark Welsh, uh, General Mark Welsh, asked uh, three of us to come and visit him in his private conference room. In there was the chief of personnel and uh, and, and, and uh, Major General uh, uh, Margaret Woodward, Maggie Woodward, uh, who was leading our sexual assault side. General Welsh said, we've done a ton of training. We've trained like crazy. It doesn't seem to be making as much difference as it should. Part of the problem there is that we bring on 30,000 new airmen every year and they need to be trained. And um, they come from different backgrounds, you know, high schools and, and, and families. And sometimes they don't actually understand what respect is all about and, uh, and think this is nothing more than a big game. And, uh, and so you got to reach out to those people. So training can only push you so far. He said, we need to do something else. At the same time, Congress had formed what they called uh, House Representatives, the Sexual Assault, Military Sexual Assault Caucus. It had one Republican uh, and one uh, Democrat. Democrat was uh, Nikki Songus, the Republican, Mike Turner. And they very much wanted to know what was going on. And they were holding hearings. So we had to respond to them. In the Senate, through largely the leadership of Senator Gillibrand, was trying to pull commanders out of the decision matrix for military justice processes. So they wanted the military to look more like, the, you know, the Department of Justice or, or a DA or a prosecuting attorney's office, where attorneys ran the whole thing and commanders didn't get a vote. Frankly, commanders weren't the problem here. <laughs> they had really nothing to do with this, but that was the impetus. And it got to the point where, you know, if you know anything about Senate processes, cloture, which ends a filibuster, uh, you have to have 60 votes. Now, they were at 55. So it looked like the UCMJ was going to go out the window and, and be done. At that meeting with, with General Welsh, and he, and he recessed it, and he said, OK, go back and think. And I had thought about this for some time. And I mentioned to him as he was leaving about an idea of giving attorneys free of charge to victims. And their only client would be the victim or the survivor, if you will. In the victim community, they refer to, prefer to be referred to as survivors. He thought it was a pretty good idea. He got very excited. And I said, well, what it would do is give them confidence and at least make them less angry at the system and you know, and if they don't want to go to court, they can tell their SVC they don't want to go to court. If they want to go to court, they can tell them that, you know, that, but they've got a voice now that understands the legal process. That's important because victims have the ability to speak at three, three times, you know, by my reckoning, under, under our rules, MRE, the Military Rules of Evidence. One is, um, you know, certainly rape shield. Rape shield's kind of tricky because it has three exceptions to the general prohibition that you're not going to talk about the sex life of a victim, the last one of which says that when it's constitutionally compelled. Well, how would a victim know what's constitutionally compelled? And how are they supposed to represent themselves in front of a judge? And, you know, an attorney, I thought, would really help there. The other victim, victim advocate privilege, uh, and the last one, the psychotherapist privilege. But all three allow the victim to... Uh, to speak to the court. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be a great idea if the victim could speak through a knowledgeable counsel and, 
and maybe and take some of the burden and, and the anxiety off the shoulders of the victim. And isn't that all about voice and choice? And couldn't we build confidence in our victim community, which is apparently large at that time, um, that the system wasn't opposed to them? So the chief of staff, General Welsh, said, I want you to go right now and go see the secretary of the Air Force, Mike Donnelly. So I went down to Secretary Donnelly's office. And I said, I told the secretary, the chief has asked me to come down and talk to the secretary. And the secretary called me and said, what's going on? And I told him the idea. And he said, that's great. That's what we're going to do. And, and we're, you go do it. And I, I said, well, sir, I need to kind of socialize the idea with the other services. I'm not sure how they're going to feel about it. And frankly, even inside the Air Force, I'm not sure how this is going to work. So, sir, I would say that at this time, obviously, at this juncture in, in 2012, this was, would you at least kind of concur that this was a bit of a quote unquote radical idea, or at least it wasn't the mainstream idea at the time? No, it wasn't. The mainstream of the idea at that time was just to tell Congress, no, we're not changing the UCMJ, even though they're about to get to 60 and change it for us. You know, they have the authority under the Constitution to pass, pass a code. UCMJ has been around a while. It's well tested. Uh, it needed some reforms, but pulling the commander out of the middle of it was not the one it needed because command is all about discipline. And if you can't present disciplined forces, then you have a problem. You know, General Washington said that, you know, discipline's the soul of the army, makes small numbers formidable, uh, procures uh, success and esteem to all. He was right in 1757 during the French and Indian War, and it's still the reason that we win today. So pulling the commander out of this and having the commander say, well, there's an attorney who doesn't live here and you've never met that's going to make a decision on whether or not this go to court, goes to court, kind of eclipses wings in a large way. And the commanders were never the problem. And, and sir, obviously, the, there was an issue, right, with, with sexual assault and like you mentioned, uh, with victims and everything that they're facing. And there needed to be some type of a solution to this problem, right? It, that seemed to be pretty apparent going on in the Pentagon at that time. But what was the prevailing sentiment on, on how to approach this or resolve this um, issue? What what was going on at that time? I mean, it seems to me that uh, the idea of having a special victim council was not what most people were advocating for or even thinking about. Well, I got to tell you, inside the JAG Corps, it's the one time I've seen uh, the judges, the defense, the prosecution, and the investigators, OSI, agree on anything. <laughs> and they all agreed they didn't like this idea at all. So so we had to socialize it inside our own JAG Corps. And to be honest, uh, we had very senior JAGs telling their commanders to be opposed to this idea. In the hallways, I was stopped uh, a few times and asked by very senior and you know political appointees, you know, what the heck I was doing and, and did I understand it was illegal? And I said, it's not illegal. It's fine. It's going to work fine. So we really had a messaging challenge inside the JAG Corps. Outside the JAG Corps, it was equally tough. Um, we had uh, four meetings on whether or not to, uh, you know, uh, inter, intra, I'm sorry, inter-service meetings, Marines, Army, uh, Air Force, Navy, and Coast Guard JAGs, all in one room. And the vote was always the same. Four were opposed and one was in favor. My vote was the one in favor. And it, and it went like that. And the final meeting we had, um, the Secretary of Defense sent down uh, his uh, one of his special advisors. And she came in and she said, I'm here because SecDef asked me to be here. And he wants to know why you are opposed to this idea. <laughs> so clearly SecDef was sending out a signal. We need to get off the dime. 
And then finally, I got called in by the Secretary of the Air Force, Mike Donnelly, again, and he said, uh, well, how's it going? And I said, I can't get anybody to sign up to this, sir. And, and he said, uh, OK. Uh, and he picked up the phone and he called SECNAV, Secretary of the Navy, and he said, we're doing this. The Secretary of the Navy asked, would you please call it a pilot program so we're not stuck forever with it? Because they all knew that they were probably going to have to do it themselves. Then we got called into, um, I got called in to brief the, uh, the Joint Chiefs. And um, I got to tell you, Gen General Odian Arrow got it. I mean, he really did. And he just said, the only problem I've got is whether or not we have enough resources to do this. And, uh, and that, he got that from his own JAG. So, and I kind of said, well, I, I'm not sure we can't afford the resources to do this. So what, what I proposed in the Air Force, and I proposed it to the other services as well, is that we repurpose people. So if we could find some legal offices that had that could afford to lose at least one billet and pull that over into the SVC program, repurpose that person as a victim's counsel, and make it a regional kind of concept, that, it, that it'd be fine. Honestly, the Army had a harder problem than we do because they've got many, many more people and sexual assaults. But they opted to do it. The Navy... Um, came around finally, and uh, <laughs> they, they changed the name of the program because it has to be the Navy way, but it was basically the SVC program. And, and then uh, <laughs> the Coast Guard said that they were doing it, but they didn't want anybody to know that they were doing it. So, <laughs> so anyway, it got, it, 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 the ball started rolling in the right direction at that point, and um, then I was called back up to, to Congress uh, to talk some more to them. And my biggest concern at that point was our own legal assistance statute, 10 U.S.C. 1044 ECHO. And it talked about, you know, providing legal services services to, to airmen and soldiers, sailors, and Marines on a, um, you know, on, on, on civil law issues. So what happens if you've got an SVC that represents a victim in a criminal hearing? So I was a little concerned about that, and, and it's important to be concerned about that because, you can't spend money, i.e., in this case, salaries for, for uh, attorneys, unless you have an authorization and, of course, an appropriation. We had the appropriation. We just didn't have the authorization clearly stated that, that we could do this. So um, I went up to uh, uh, Congressman Turner, who was very helpful on these things, and I said, you know, it would be nice if, if 10 U.S.C. 1044 ECHO said that we could do this. And so he started working on that. Uh, other Congress uh, people were less happy about that. And as a matter of fact, the Secretary of the Air Force and I were in a hearing at the House where um, one of the uh, Congresswomen said, um, Secretary Donnelly, would you please order your TJAG your to do this? I, I said, I'd be happy to do it. I just need you know, to follow the Constitution and, and get an authorization. Uh, and when the hearing ended, Secretary Donnelly said, let's try to figure out what we can do. And I said, well, here's what we can do. We can ask the Department of Defense General Counsel, Jay Johnson at the time, to please give us an opinion on whether or not this is within the scope of 1044 ECHO. And he said, okay, go do that. And I, so we went, I talked to Jay, uh, to uh, Secretary Johnson, and, uh, and later became Homeland Security um, uh, Secretary. W would you give me an opinion? And oh, by the way, and I kind of telegraphed, when they represent a victim in a court of law, isn't it really kind of like a privacy issue, which is civil in nature? You know, can't we say that therefore this is authorized? And um, and Jay thought about it. About a week later, 
I got called into Secretary Donnelly's office and Jay Johnson was in there and he hands me his signed opinion, which says it's a privacy issue. <laughs> Therefore, you're within the scope of 1044 Echo. And then Jay said, what do you intend to do now? And, and I said, well, we intend to set this program up and, and get it going. Jay said, fine. And that was the end of the meeting. And of course, he went back and he told SecDef that, which is what I think SecDef really wanted to hear, certainly. And, and we started the program. Now, there was still lots of resistance. And uh, we just had to, to, to deal with it. Um, some of our own people were worried about, um, you know, this kind of looks like it's 2v1. In other words, uh, two counsel against one, the prosecutor and the, and the SVC against the defense counsel. And I said, well, that's true if, I mean, not, you know, it's sometimes the other way. It's 1v2, you know, when the victim doesn't want to go to trial and the victim has, you know, a right to be represented. And the, and the response was always, well, the prosecution reps that represents the victim. Well, no, they don't. They represent the people or in our, our case, the United States. They don't represent the victim. And if you've ever done one of these cases, you know, there comes a point in time when the interest of the prosecution, the victim kind of separate. And those are always awkward times, particularly if we're talking about plea negotiations. And and I knew we had some people that had forced victims to, to testify, even though the victim didn't want to go to a trial. And I thought that was just nuts. And it was a good way to upset a victim and probably lose, the case, lose your case anyway. So we had large discussion about all of those things. At one point, one of the senior JAGs said, well, where is the victim's counsel, the special victim's counsel going to sit? I said, what do you mean, where are they going to sit? Well, do they have a table up front? Of course they don't. They're not a party. If there's room in the gallery, fine, let them sit in the gallery, <laughs> uh, like anybody else. But no, they're not a party. So there was lots of confusion. So we met as a JAG Corps at MAGCOM level uh, several times to try to iron out what the what the kind of the rules, the, the guidance would be on the Special Victims Council program. And finally, I think we, we got down to, to some kind of consensus, and that's what we came out with as the initial rules. So, And we called it a pilot program because the Navy wanted us to call it a pilot program. Uh, I will tell you, Secretary Donnelly told me it's a pilot program forever. <laughs> so <laughs> because he was convinced this was going to work, and I'm, I'm glad he did. And we no longer call it a pilot program. And and as you know, um, it was then embedded in law. Uh, C Congress mandated it, um, you know, uh, and Mike Turner had a lot to do with that, Congressman Turner, uh, and uh, uh, Senator McCaskill, Claire McCaskill. Um, <clears throat> uh, Senator Gillibrand was silent on the whole thing. As a matter of fact, I had asked for an appointment. I was given one to brief her on the program. And when I got there, her people came out into the conference area and said, um, the senator's not going to meet with you today. There's nothing you can say that will change your mind. So we had, you know, it was an interesting kind of bipartisan moment because you had Democrats fighting Democrats and Republicans joining with the Democrats. It, it was kind of neat to watch, watch the process. But, uh, you know, they were largely very much in favor of the program. And now it's mandated in law. And, uh, and, I, and I think that's great. Um, you know, we started, again, with 87% unreported and 13% reported, half of those in a restricted sense. And the numbers started to go up, and it multiplied like three times. And that was all about trust and confidence in, in the system, because I have somebody on my side, so the victim says, and I think they were feeling less abused by the process, and, and we pulled a lot of anxiety off their shoulders by doing so. Um, I got a uh, feedback for... A, 
about a year on the program. Uh, I remember one one victim wrote me a letter and she said, uh, you know, I was on the verge of suicide. And then this guy <laughs> got a phone call, special victims counsel, you want to talk. And she literally said, he saved my life. So, and I thought that, well, that's pretty good, pretty good idea then. <laughs> That's a great outcome. And uh, and we and we heard from many others to just, you know, said I, I couldn't have got through this process alone. So I think the uh, you know, the, the feedback that we got pretty much is proof in the pudding that it, that it was working. I was also worried about how many times the victims interviewed and I got criticized for worrying about a what Congress was going to do. You know, that was somehow a political animal. And, you know, because I wanted to save the UCMJ, I guess. And uh and how many times a, a victim is interviewed. When a victim is interviewed without a counsel, it's kind of a one-sided match. So a captain's interviewing uh, a two-striper uh, is what happens. And if they do that repeatedly and the victim decides, I just don't want to do this anymore, well, th- that may be an okay decision, but wouldn't it be better if there was a counsel in the room that said, hey, you've asked and that's been answered and let's move on. And that's what the SVCs are there to do. Yes, sir. And obviously, there was there was a lot of resistance to kind of get this program off the ground, which which is incredible how this all kind of came to pass, and you were able to successfully do that. But then implementing the program, right, and 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 seeing how this program was going to kind of quote unquote play out through the military justice process. What were some of the biggest obstacles or challenges that you could foresee that you would face, maybe even in that first year, and getting the program off the ground successfully? I um, elected, because of course TJAG has assignment authority, but I elected to hear from the MAGCOM SJAs on those people that they thought would be good SVCs. And we got a list of folks, and, and I took some of the people off the list because I disagreed with the MAGCOM SJA. And you could tell which of the MAGCOM SJAs were kind of supportive and which of them were just kind of being not as supportive as they could be. And then we then we decided we would do training. And so I called on the experts because we don't know all of this. I mean, I've worked cases where there's been counsel for the victim, and I I get that. I've never been a counsel for a victim. Uh, I've been a prosecuting attorney. Uh, I've done some defense work, but I've never never done that. So I called on the University of Oregon School of Law, Meg Garvin, Professor Meg Garvin, um, who runs the National Crime Victims Law Institute. And said, Meg, I really need your help. And um, and I met her through um, Chuck Blanchard, the general counsel for um, uh, the Air Force. Then I visited with her and uh, and I asked her to come down and help us at Maxwell in, in the JAG school, train the first cadre. And she did. She was so gracious with her time and came down there. Um, I flew down and took an NPR reporter with me because it was important to kind of socialize this in the, in the public's eyes because we were we had taken a few black eyes on several on sexual assault. There's no way you can suggest that 26,000 sexual assaults in a year is a good thing. It's not. It's ugly. So, so I took him down there. And I said, you know, report on what you want to report. And he sat in the, you know, in the large auditorium with, with the rest of them. And I charged them to understand that there's a lot of pressure on what they're about to do. Uh, there are a lot of people that are hoping for, for success, but that uh, they needed to know that the eyes of the nation were on them. And then I turned it over to Meg. I said, she's going to tell you about the details. And Meg did. I mean, she went into how to represent a victim and 
some of the um, bio neurology um, uh, that, that goes into this. And it's really important to understand that. There's a great uh, psychologist at the University of Minnesota, uh, Re Rebecca Campbell, uh, the PhD, who's, who's done lots of studies on this. And so it's important to understand when a victim freezes, that's tonic immobility. It happens quite a lot where they don't say anything. They don't move. They just they're, they're just thinking that, you know, it's kind of an out of body almost experience. There's a fragmented memory where they can't piece together what happened first, second or last. You know, there's a flat affect immediately after if there's a fresh complaint. Um, because of the dopamine in the system, they're not going to be screaming, hey, you know, you need to do something like if somebody stole your car, <laughs> they scream that way. But instead, they're very matter of fact. And a lot of law enforcement officers take that to mean that they're not really credible. So we talked about all those things that they, that they were going to have. So it's more than just the practice of law. They need to understand some of the psychology that goes along with this. We actually use that as well to train others. I, I brought uh, Rebecca Camp, Dr. Campbell, up to the uh, Pentagon uh, to, to train others so they knew what we were dealing with. And it, the, a lot of these things were not unusual. They're, they're to be expected. And then we turned them loose. I told them, I want each of you to go to the base where you're assigned. And we initially kept them at the base where they were assigned. There were so many objections within the Air Force. The vice chief of staff asked me not to not to um, reassign anybody for the time being. So I said, go and find office space. There's got to be something there and then get a sign. And we've got to, you know, the civil engineers can make you a sign. It says special victims council. And you open, you open your shop. The assistant vice chief of staff called me in his office twice to tell me that I needed to go and tell General Welsh that the program wasn't working. I said, well, what are you talking about? And so somebody had talked to the CVA, the vice chief of staff. I said, it is working. I, you know, I'd tell him in a heartbeat if I thought something wasn't working. And he didn't understand the legalities of it. He was just told that what we were doing was going to be illegal. And it, of course, isn't. So um, so he went through all of those machinations. And then we got people up and running. And they were doing great work. They were sending me pictures of the sign in front of the building. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I said, all right, we've got a footprint. And then the vice chief of staff, finally, I went to him and I said, I had to brief the, the Air Force Council. And I said, we're, we're doing this program. I'm not going to ask you for any money, but you need to know we're doing this program. I'm going to divert some of my salary money um, from base legal offices into this program. And I said, I may have to cut back a little bit on legal assistance. There were some objections in the, in the room, but uh, it, it, it won the day. And uh, the vice chief of staff, who chairs the Air Force Council, said, yeah, you can go ahead and move your people to where you need them. So we started doing that. So that was really, and it took us, gosh, uh, most of a year to get to that point. And that's just, you know, trying to get people used to change. And change management is hugely important and it can lock people up like a case of the bends and, uh, and you just can't do it all at once. So, so, but we got there. That concludes part one of the interview with Lieutenant General Harding. In part two, we continue discussion on the SVC program, including the seminal case of LRM v. Kastenberg, that afforded victims' counsel certain legal rights on behalf of their clients. How universities across the country are now modeling aspects of military procedure in their administrative Title IX sex assault cases on campus, and General Harding's views on how to effectuate positive change. If you like this episode, please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leaving a review. This helps us to grow an outreach for the betterment of the Air Force and the JAG Corps. See you on the next episode.
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General's Reporter Podcast. You can find this episode, transcription, and show notes, along with others, at reporter.dodlive.mil. We welcome your feedback. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review. This helps us grow, innovate, and develop an even better JAG Corps. Until next time, nothing from this show or any others should be construed as legal advice. Please consult an attorney for any legal issue. Nothing from this show is endorsed by the federal government, Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of our guests and hosts. Thank you.